From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, August 20th. I'm Marco Werman. The diplomatic standoff over WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange continues. Many Latin American governments support Ecuador's decision to give Assange asylum. This former U.S. diplomat isn't surprised. I think uh, part and parcel of this with regard to Latin American countries comes with the uh, opportunity to take a swipe at the United States. And later, the ubiquitous cry of Cairo's junk man. Bikia! Did you just hear Bikia, Bikia? PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange remains holed up inside Ecuador's embassy in London. He's been quiet since making a public statement yesterday, calling for an end to what he called the U.S. witch hunt against his anti-secrecy organization. Ecuador's decision to grant Assange asylum got a lot of support from other Latin American nations over the weekend. A meeting of foreign ministers from around the region backed the Ecuadorian government and condemned Britain for threatening to forcibly remove Assange from the embassy. We're going to deal with this complicated story from a number of angles. We begin with Natalia Viana. She directs Publica, a Brazilian nonprofit investigative journalism center. Viana says diplomatic asylum has played a key role in Latin American history. It has saved dozens of opposition uh, leaders doing our very, very bloody dictatorship. So, for instance, when Pinochet had his coup in Chile, lots of embassies were used as asylum. You have a very big, important political figure in Brazil, José Serra, who is running for São Paulo a mayor who was living in the Italian embassy for eight months. This is a very sacred institution for Latin America. You remember that after the the coup in Honduras, uh, the Honduran president went to the Brazilian embassy and stayed there for for, uh, some months as well. So the the motivation is more about preserving this institution and and preserving uh, what is considered as Ecuadorian soil in, in the UK. So what about Assange himself? How do uh, other Latin American leaders, uh, how do uh, the leaders in in Ecuador feel about Assange the person and what he's done? None of the the leaders have said we support Assange or we support uh, what he's doing. They're saying we support Ecuador because Ecuador is is an independent state and that should be uh, respected. Natalia, we we should point out that you were a member of the team assembled by WikiLeaks in the weeks before the publication nearly two years ago of what Brazilians call Cablegate, the 3,000 sensitive cables to and from the U.S. embassy and consulates in in Brazil provided by WikiLeaks. What was your role in the release of those cables and what did the leak mean for Brazil's media? 
I was part of a team assembled by Julian Assange that helped him to devise strategy for different countries. And in Latin America, they did have a quite a comprehensive strategy. They did deliver the cables to most Latin American countries, which is like the continent that got its stories more widespread. Many of the cables were quite revealing. They were also quite revealing about how different the Bush administration was dealing with, for instance, the rise of Venezuela and the rise of Brazil as uh, local powers and how different the Bush administration was trying to deal with them. Do you think these countries in supporting Ecuador's asylum bid for Julian Assange are essentially standing up to the U.S. because the U.S. opposes this? The countries, they are standing against the U.K. uh, decision or the U.K. threat to storming the embassy. We are also in a very specific moment in which Latin America is showing a a unity in that we're together and we're standing together. Natalia Viana directs Publica, a Brazilian nonprofit investigative journalism center. Retired Ambassador John Mesto has long experience in Latin America. He was U.S. Ambassador to Nicaragua from 1993 to 1996 and to Venezuela from 1997 to 2000. Mesto says Latin American nations are eager to make a point to Washington. It's pretty clear that uh, there is a great deal of uh, political theater going on. I think uh, part and parcel of this with regard to Latin American countries comes with the uh, opportunity to uh, to take a swipe at the United States, which uh, the president of Ecuador certainly has done. You know, this is part of the old uh, foreign devil theory that you learn in International Relations 101. Uh, always look for uh, somebody uh, outside of your own borders to point the finger at. And uh, this has been going on in certain countries for a long time. Right. Now, back to that political theater. Help us understand the relationship between Ecuador and the United States. Was there bad blood between the two nations before Assange sought asylum in the embassy there in London? The current government in Ecuador is uh, is certainly leftist. Uh, it, uh, it aligns itself uh, with President Chavez in the hemisphere. Uh, uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, anti-U.S. rhetoric that comes out of governments like this. And by the way, the other governments in Latin America also have leftist uh, con- constituencies. And it's, and it's pretty easy to, to line up uh, to do gringo bashing uh, in the home capital and have it play out in, uh, in, in the home media. Um, that usually always uh, is a winner. And in the case of the Assange um, uh, situation, the uh, uh, the uh, ex- the WikiLeaks cable exposure gives an added dimension to it, a hugely added uh, dimension to it, because uh, what the United States is doing uh, in other parts of the world, um, particularly in, uh, in in the Middle East, uh, is not uh, particularly uh, popular uh, in Latin America. So diplomatically, how does one back away from the brink in this situation? The essence of diplomacy is trying to uh, work out uh, solutions to very uh, thorny problems. Uh, I don't have an easy answer to this. I I think uh, the countries have to keep on talking. I think the UK is handling this the way a sovereign nation uh, can and and should. It's keeping it strictly within the realm of international uh, law and practice. And uh, and what happens uh, farther down the line should also be carried out on the basis of international law and diplomatic practice. Uh, Our Latin American friends often talk about international law. Uh, uh, The United States, uh, I think, carries out much of its diplomacy in the realm of, uh, uh, within the realm of of international law. Uh, But there is such a thing as sovereignty. And uh, uh, the UK is sovereign. 
Sweden is sovereign, and the United States is sovereign, and sovereign countries look after their own interests. Uh, by the way, let, let me make a comment. A, a Latin American commentator uh, who is very popular in Latin America, his name is uh, Moises Naim, wrote in El País when he looked through the WikiLeaks cables, he, he made three observations which I found interesting. One, he said uh, the, the cables were very well written. He said uh, he, he would like to have uh, uh, journalists who write as well as some of those cables were written. Mm. Number two, he saw that the, the Americans were saying the same thing privately that they were saying publicly with regard to their policies. And number three, it was evident that many Latin Americans said one thing privately and another thing publicly. So given all that, why is Julian Assange such a lightning rod? Well, because he's revealed things that countries like to keep private. You know, it's very very similar to what paparazzi do. It's very similar to what invest, uh, a certain type of investigative journalism does, not investigative journalism that really focuses on, on, on digging out the facts, Watergate-style investigative journalism, for example, but the sensational type of stuff. And, and that's what you see. Uh, uh, you know, 98% of the stuff that's in those cables, I haven't read them, but I understand that uh, 98% of the stuff that's in those cables is not news. Uh, but uh, what might be news? Oh, what one embassy says about one particular individual and this particular individual's relationship with the president uh, and questions about uh, uh, in a country in the Andes, there are always questions about uh, international uh, criminal activity. Uh, just look at the geography in that part of the world and it's not difficult to figure out. John Mesto, former U.S. ambassador to Nicaragua and Venezuela. Thank you for your time and your thoughts. You're welcome. Yesterday, Julian Assange used his public statement to draw attention to Bradley Manning. He is the U.S. soldier in custody for over two years, accused of leaking sensitive military information to WikiLeaks. Here's what Assange said about him. If Bradley Manning did, as he is accused, he is a hero and an example to all of us. And one of the world's foremost political prisoners. Bradley Manning must be released. Manning is scheduled to go on trial in September. Kim Zetter has been following his case for Wired.com. And Kim, for our listeners, remind us of the particulars in the Manning case. What is he accused of doing? He has multiple charges pending against him, about 21 charges, and they uh, a lot of them sort of re- repeat. Um, but it's, of course, charges for uh, leaking videos and you know, hundreds of thousands of documents to WikiLeaks, including about 250,000 State Department cables. He's been held for uh, over two years. Where is he being held? Currently, he's at Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. Initially, he was incarcerated in May 2010, and then he was transferred to a Marine Corps brig in Quantico, where there were allegations of mistreatment there. And what about those allegations of mistreatment? What do we know about the veracity behind them? Well, the, uh, his defense attorney has made several uh, assertions and motions that Manning initially at Quantico was held under uh, solitary confinement most of his days. He was woken up at 5 a.m., was required to stay awake until 10 p.m. that night. Anytime he nodded off, uh, the guards barged into his cell and woke him up. He wasn't allowed to fraternize with any other inmates. He was allowed out of his cell only about 20 minutes a day for sunshine. And even then, he had shackles on his feet and hands. So, I mean, Manning seems to be kind of the forgotten part of the WikiLeaks story. And I'm just wondering whether Julian Assange's latest round of publicity, that that mention, that very public mention of, of Bradley Manning yesterday, 
Does that help or hurt Manning's case? Uh, I don't think it has one effect either way on Manning's case. I mean, WikiLeaks is very focused on itself and its own issues, particularly Assange. Um, WikiLeaks hasn't always backed up its vocal support of Manning. They had pledged to provide a minimum $50,000 for his defense and in the end only gave 15000 So it's often appeared that, uh, you know, WikiLeaks has forgotten Manning and then only picked up the mantle. Um, when, you know, it was necessary for to remind people that WikiLeaks had a cause in this as well. How long could Bradley Manning spend in the in his upcoming trial? How much of a time burner could the whole thing be? Uh, well, it's already been, you know, in, in preliminary stages, two years, which exceeds the 120 days that are set by regulations. Uh, you know, he, he has to have a trial within 120 days. The Army uh, stopped the clock um, several times, and the defense now also is asking for a stay in the trial in order to um, review materials. Um, so it's looking now, the the trial was supposed to be set for uh, sort of mid-late September. His defense attorney is asking for a delay of about two months. Um, once the trial hits, the preliminary hearing lasted about uh, seven, eight days, and that was really zipping quickly through uh, testimony and evidence. So I would expect that the trial would last a minimum of two weeks. Do you get the sense that there's some kind of firewall, uh, an invisible firewall, if you will, at the Pentagon between uh, the anger over what WikiLeaks did with with all these cables uh, and uh, what Bradley Manning has done and his trial? Uh, No, I don't believe there's any separation whatsoever. I think the prosecution is trying to tie the two together and, in fact, brought that up in the trial, uh, trying to connect Assange to Manning um, and portray him as a conspirator. So I don't think that they're they're separate. I think that the anger towards Assange is melded in the anger toward Manning. Kim Zetter, who's been covering the Bradley Manning case for Wired.com. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. You can find more of our ongoing coverage of WikiLeaks, including a profile of founder Julian Assange and the latest news on the case from our partners at the BBC. That's all at theworld.org. Still ahead, fear and loathing and Voltaire on the campaign trail 2012 on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. They're calling it the biggest trial in China in a generation. On one level, it's a simple murder case, but the perpetrator is the wife of a disgraced former top Communist Party official. The victim, a foreign businessman. So it's not so simple. Today, the confessed killer, Gu Kai Lai, was given a suspended death sentence. Zhang Lijia is an independent writer and journalist in Beijing. Can you tell us, first of all, before we get into the the meat of the story, uh, Lijia, what is a suspended death sentence? What does that mean? It means as compared to death sentence, which means you will be executed. So suspended death sentence often, uh, from what I understand, in two years down the road, there could be a review. And uh, in this case, I'm almost certain that the sentence will be reduced to life sentence. And then further, a few years ago, depends also on the political situation. I think she can be released on medical ground. I see. So, so the suspended sentence is much more lenient compared to death sentence. Right. Well, it is a relatively lenient sentence for a case of uh, intentional homicide, capital murder in China. What accounts for that? Oh, 
I this this was exactly what I predicted because we all knew that she will get a lengthy sentence because she admitted already. But on the other hand, I think a severe sentence like death sentence would probably lead to more outrage and controversy because after all, her husband's family is still very powerful, even though her husband Bo Xilai now has been disgraced. Right. Well, uh, tell us about uh, that part of the story. I mean, Bo Xilai was a, a fast rising star in the Communist Party, a powerful man and a member of the Politburo. He, first of all, he is a red princeling, meaning that he is a son of a high ranking leader. His father, Bo Yibo, was very influential, was a friend of Chairman Mao and all that. So he was a rising political star, and he sounds like, um, from all accounts, was a very capable, very ambitious man. Now, Gu Kailai, uh, his wife, uh, who was sentenced today, uh, she's well known in China. What is known about her uh, as a person? She wasn't that well known. She, she was known in certain fields, and she was certainly a successful lawyer. Um, now she's she's a, a household name, and the whole case has been, you know, the whole country, the people in the China have absolutely been fascinated by the whole thing. Mm. You know, China in China, the leaders and their family is being shrouded in secrecy, and for once we saw how you know the all the all these financial dealings and the some studying at Oxford and Harvard. And the corruption and you know political intrigue and so all these things just very um, is always like a, a thriller. Right. Uh, what what <laughs> what do Chinese say about Gu Kailai uh, amongst themselves? But it's quite interesting if you read uh, Sina Weibo, which I do and every, almost every day. That's a big uh, social media of, site in China. Yes, yeah. yes. It's a, oh, there are all kinds of interesting voices. For example, there have been concerns if. The law has been observed strictly. Everything has been done in such a hasty fashion. The whole trial was only lasted for one day. Right. And I think the government obviously is very keen to end this drama that fascinated the whole country in preparing for the coming uh, 18th Party Congress. Um, we'll see the once in a decade leadership change. So the, the government. The leaders obviously very keen to get this out of the way. So some people have been all voiced concern about irregularity and things like that. Zhang Li Jia, independent writer and journalist based in Beijing. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Every major world city has its unique characters. Egypt's capital is no exception, and one of Cairo's quintessential characters is the Bekia man. That's the guy who collects all the junk city residents want to get rid of. He announces his arrival by crying out, Bekia, Bekia, to anyone who will listen. Reporter Julia Simon listened and sent us an audio postcard featuring two longtime Cairo residents, one who loves hearing the word Bekia and one who lives by it. Did you just hear Bikya, Bikya, Bikya? I'm Humphrey Davies and I'm a translator. I translate from Arabic into English literature. 1968, for the first time, I came to study in Cairo. It's a memory that goes back to my earliest memories, my earliest time in, in Cairo. It was probably when I was working on the dictionary of Egyptian spoken Arabic. And it became apparent that Rubba Bikya is derived from Italian. 
from roba vecchia, which means old stuff, old things. Uh, rag and bone men is what we used to call them in England. Ah, roba vecchia, يعني حاجة قديمة. Radio قديمة زي أي حاجة قديمة. Roba vecchia means old radios, old air conditioners, any old thing you don't need anymore. Instead of throwing it away, just call the vecchia man. Ask him how much it is. He'll take it away, and you'll take the money. It's as simple as that. I'm Saeed Shaban, and I've worked as a Bekia man for 10 years. I just take the stuff on my bicycle cart. Here, I'll take you, the foreigner, with me for a ride. Hello, hello. Here, let me see. Do you have anything for Robabekia? Uh, this here is an old chair. I'm going to take it for Robabekia. There are Bekia men with nice voices. Some say it like Bekia, Bekia, as they walk, and that's okay. But others say it like Bekia, Bekia, in a bad voice. <laughs> I remember hearing it when I was a child a long time ago. Maybe the Robabekia started a hundred years ago. What impresses me is that I still hear them at least as much, if not more, these days in 2012 than I did a long while ago. When I first came to Egypt, a lot of the traffic, um, the goods traffic and so on, was horse-drawn. And it was just a, a different feel, you know, just a, some, a little bit of Dickens about it, a little bit of the 19th century. And the Rubabik Yaman seemed to go with that. The Bekia man is a poor man. He can't find a good job, so he works in Robabekia rather than being a thief. In this neighborhood a decade ago, there were only two or three Bekia men. Now there are 10, 20, a lot. There's no other work. The young men work as Robabekia so they can get an apartment and get married. I work in Robabekia so I can earn my bread for my family. That's it. Robabekia! Working in Robabekia, there's a lot of dust, a lot of exhaustion. You will carry heavy things upstairs and downstairs, maybe five or six floors. I can't do it anymore. I'm getting old, almost 60 years old. I'm over. When my time in this life ends, I will know the meaning of exhaustion in this life. But it's not important if I'm tired or not tired. All I want is my sons to be happy. That's it. They must have good jobs that aren't Robabekia. Robabekia is tiring work. Though there's a father who takes his 10-year-old to train him in Robabekia activity. But why not teach him something else? Yeah, the Robabekia won't stop. It will survive through the ages. That audio postcard from the streets of Cairo, featuring the well-known cry of the city's Bekia man, was produced by reporter Julia Simon. This is PRI. I'm Marco Worman, and coming up, a visit to the place where young Mormons prepare for their overseas missions. I remember my first day at the MTC, I heard a missionary say that starting to learn a language at the missionary training center was like trying to get a drink out of a fire hydrant. And you might get some water in your mouth, but really just get blasted in the face. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. 
United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Some call it the Mormon moment, or even the Mitt Romney effect. Whatever you call it, Mormons say they've never been asked so many questions about their faith, especially about their experience serving missions around the world. Today we have the first of several stories on the reach of the Mormon church abroad. The first comes from reporter Andrea Smartin of KUER. She spent some time with young Mormons heading out on their missions. Blame it on the Book of Mormon musical. Hello, my name is Elder Price, and I would like to share with you the most amazing book. Or maybe the Republican Party's first Mormon nominee for U.S. president. But lately, everybody has been asking Jason Wright about his mission to Brazil, even though he returned 20 years ago. Wright is an author and political commentator now living in Virginia. Probably the most frequent question is, why and did they make you? Members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are not required to go on mission. But if they apply, then church authorities in Salt Lake City decide where they will go. Men, who must be at least 19, go on two-year missions. Women, who must be 21, go for 18 months. When I explain that serving a mission for the LDS Church is not mandatory, they want to know why in the world would you do it? And that they just repeat that question when they find out that you don't go to school during that time, you don't communicate with home much, you don't date, you don't see movies or go swimming or really participate in sort of the world, quote-unquote, much during that two-year period of time. And you pay your own way, by the way. For Wright, it was not an easy decision. You know, I was, I was turning off what for most probably 18, 19-year-old American young man is one of the most exciting and adventurous times of your life as you enter into college. I was turning all that off to go serve the Lord for two years in this, you know, in this foreign land. It's a decision that Mormon young people continue to make. Every week, about 400 new missionaries arrive at the Mission Training Center in Provo, Utah, already wearing their signature white shirts and ties. This is where two-thirds of all Mormon missionaries start their journey. They have just a couple minutes to say goodbye to their families at the curb. In most cases, they won't see them again until they return from their missions. Spencer Christensen is a manager at the Mission Training Center. It is a very big day. This has been anticipated for months and months by these families, as well as uh, missionaries, usually years, anticipated. And so this is a very big day for all of them. Christensen says the center can accommodate up to 4,000 people at a time. Some missionaries will be here for three weeks, but if they're studying a language, they stay as long as 12 weeks. In class, the language lessons are almost exclusively focused on religious matters. The students are grouped in pairs, as they will be in the field. Alex Nightingale is a teacher here. He's just 21, originally from Australia, and fresh off his own mission to Singapore. He's teaching Mandarin to a group headed to Taiwan. Nightingale says the first few days here can be overwhelming. You see a lot of big eyes. Um, they step their first foot in the classroom, and the teacher addresses them in Chinese, and they don't hear him speak English for quite a number of days. 
This particular class is trying something new. Normally, missionaries study Chinese for 12 weeks. This group is trying to do it in nine weeks. Kaylee Taylor is from Bountiful, Utah. I remember my first day at the MTC. I heard a missionary say that starting to learn a language at the missionary training center was like trying to get a drink out of a fire hydrant, and you might get some water in your mouth, but really you just get blasted in the face. And I think that kind of sums it up for me. Despite the seemingly impossible task of learning Mandarin in nine weeks, the missionaries seem convinced that this is what they're supposed to be doing. Anthony Buckwalter remembers when he first received the letter telling him where he would serve. I can't really ex- describe it, but once I, you know, read the word Taiwan, I almost had this instant love for the people of Taiwan and huge desire to go, you know, serve them and help them come unto Christ. The number of Mormons willing to commit to a mission is down from a peak in the early 1990s, when there were more than 60,000 church members actively serving missions around the world. Church historian Reed Nielsen says a dip in numbers is partly a result of demographic shifts, fewer young people in the church. But there's another reason. There was also a shift years ago to try and raise the level of expectations of who could serve a mission. They called that raising the bar, where all of a sudden. Not every young man or every young woman could serve a mission because of past behavior, or transgression, or or other challenges they might have, whether it be physical or mental or emotional issues. Nielsen says the number of missionaries is starting to climb back up as the LDS Church expands into new areas. Now, where do you see growth? You see it in Africa. You see it in South America. You see it in the Philippines. You see it in parts of Asia.、Um, as people are interested, as people are more open to Uh, changing religious traditions, open to experiencing new religious experiences. That's where the growth of the church is, and that's where many of the new Mormon missionaries are heading. For the world, I'm Andrea Smartin. Tomorrow we head to Chile. There, Mormon missionaries are working to find new members, but also to retain those who've slipped away. Finding them and reactivating them and teaching them as though they were almost new members. That's tomorrow on the world. Mitt Romney served his mission in France, and his pick for vice president, Paul Ryan, seems to have an interest in at least one French philosopher. Ryan told People magazine that he listens to audio lectures in his car, and he mentioned one in particular on Voltaire. Voltaire was a leading thinker of the 18th-century Enlightenment movement. He was also a big critic of the Catholic Church, and Paul Ryan is a devout Catholic. Laure Mondeville is Washington correspondent for the French daily Le Figaro. Laure, let me read you what Ryan told People magazine when asked what he reads for fun. I listen to lectures from the great courses in the car wherever I go. I'm listening to a great one on Voltaire right now. I enjoy studying the Enlightenment, which is an 18th-century debate. Did that surprise you? Actually, I found it, if not surprising, quite refreshing and interesting to hear because. It's difficult to quote a politician,、uh, either American or French, at the moment, who is willingly reading Voltaire. You know, it's sort of surprising in, in this world. So, I thought it was quite interesting and and showed that、uh, Paul Ryan is maybe indeed the intellectual of the right that actually his、uh, party has presented him to be. Right. So, almost in a way, just mentioning Voltaire got your attention. This is how comedian Stephen Colbert reacted to that quote. Last week on his program, the Colbert Report. Yes, 
The Enlightenment was a fascinating debate back in the 18th century about whether science and reason had a role to play in the public sphere. A debate that, to Republicans, rages on to this day. Law, you could see why uh, Stephen Colbert jumped on Paul Ryan listening to a tape uh, from these great courses about Voltaire. It's a kind of a gift for a comedian. But in the articles you've written for Le Figaro, your paper, you've talked about Paul Ryan as a true intellectual. Tell us what you mean. Yes. I mean, from what I've read, you know, extensively in American newspapers, both right and left, he has been really qualified everywhere as an intellectual and someone who has been very interested by theories, by, you know, substance. But I thought that it's an interesting pick for the Republican Party, especially coming after Sarah Palin. Mm. It's really quite the opposite of Paul Ryan. And uh, I think, you know, of course, I understand the point of, of Steele Colbert and that uh, for uh, Paul Ryan, who is a, a Catholic, to say that he's enjoying Voltaire may seem a paradox, but one should not try to uh, encapture, you know, Voltaire in a in a very ideological, a partisan way, because he's against the uh, Catholic Church of that time. He's also against Islam and Mahomet, you know. So, but at the same time, he was a believer that there was a God, you know, he was a, a deist. This was really a guy who was a, a free mind. And I think that if Paul Ryan can pick this uh, willingness of Voltaire to get out of uh, the comfort zone, I think it would be a great asset for uh, the conversation between the right and the left in the presidential debate. Do you presume Paul Ryan to be an intellectual simply because he listened to a tape about Voltaire? No, actually, I, I don't know if he is, you know, an intellectual in the uh, strict sense of the word. I mean, he's still a politician, but he seems to be a policy politician. I mean, someone who is interested in ideas, they can be, you know, debatable, but at least they seem to exist. And I think it's quite good, you know, because I think everyone was complaining in this presidential campaign so far about the lack of ideas, a lack of debate on substance. And maybe we're going to have that. You know, as I told you, I don't hear very often that politicians are reading Voltaire and maybe they should, you know, they would get a more complex and interesting and, you know, free view of the world. Laure Mondeville, correspondent for Le Figaro in Washington. Thank you very much. Thanks. For today's GeoQuiz, we are asking a curiosity question. Over the weekend, NASA's Curiosity rover zapped its first Martian rock with a laser. NASA says it was target practice designed to hone the rover's instruments. Curiosity, which landed on Mars earlier this month, is on a two-year mission to determine whether the red planet might ever have supported life. No solar panels to keep the rover warm and humming during that time, though. Instead, Curiosity is powered by plutonium-238. It's a man-made nuclear fuel, and only two places in the world have made a lot of it. One is the Savannah River nuclear plant on the South Carolina-Georgia border, and you get to name the other. It's a former Soviet nuclear complex in the Ural Mountains, built in secrecy during the 1940s. And in the 1950s, it was the site of one of the worst nuclear accidents in history. You're going to have to be laser sharp with your answer. It's coming up in a matter of seconds.
Okay, so the nuclear fuel for NASA's latest Mars rover comes from the Mayak Industrial Complex in Russia. That's M-A-Y-A-K. This fact was brought to our attention by an article published on Slate.com today. It's written by Jeff Brumfield. He's a senior reporter for Nature magazine, and he joins us from London. Tell us about plutonium-238 and how the Mars rover is connected to this nuclear facility in Mayak in Russia. Sure. Well, I mean, plutonium-238 is used to fuel um, spacecraft because it's hot. I mean, literally hot. It glows red, and it just glows like a piece of charcoal for years and years and years. And so it makes a great source of power for places that don't get a lot of sunlight. Now, previous Mars rovers have used solar panels, but they've had to shut down over the winter months. And the scientists using Curiosity wanted a much more powerful rover that they could run year-round. It's got to have one of the highest MPG ratings of any any vehicle out there. How, how long is this fuel going to last? <laughs> it's it, You're absolutely right. It's been rated for 14 years, um, I'm told by the guys who put it together, and it probably could go a bit longer than that. Uh, the Voyager spacecraft, which off the top of my head I think were launched in the 70s, are still running, and they're running on plutonium-238. So, yeah, it has a half-life of 87 years, 88 years. So the good news is it's fuel efficiency. The bad news is plutonium-238 is pretty dangerous stuff, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, I mean, actually, one of the advantages of it is it's not dangerous in the usual way you think of um, plutonium or radioactive material in the sense that it's not going to zap you if you're in the same room as it. The the radioactivity um, actually doesn't even penetrate a sheet of paper. Uh, It just has to do with the way it decays. The problem is that if it gets inside your body, um, it doesn't need to penetrate a sheet of paper. It's already inside you. And so it can make you very sick. And so workers at Mayak have been exposed to plutonium-238 through inhalation. Uh, In the U.S., there was a facility that was making this fuel, and it has become heavily contaminated with plutonium-238. And so cleanup's a real issue. And that was the Savannah River? Um, that was at Savannah River. Right. That's right, yeah. Uh, Jeff, clarify one thing for me. Is Mayak in Russia currently producing plutonium-238, or is the plutonium fuel on, on board Curiosity uh, just from some stockpile that Mayak has had uh, for lots of years? That's a very good question. And the truth of the matter is that both Russia and the U.S. have shut down their weapons reactors. They're not interested in making any more plutonium this is just surplus. This is left over from the battle days, as it were. NASA actually had a surplus as well. The U.S. and the Department of Energy had a surplus. NASA used that up on space missions. They um, made contact with Russia in the 90s and asked them for some of theirs, and Russia was happy to oblige. Um, NASA paid them a, a price for it, and they got some. The thing is, um, you know, now Russia's running out as well. The U.S. is running out. Everyone's running out. So we're going to have to start thinking about making plutonium-238 again if we want to continue these sorts of deep space um, exploration experiments and rovers and things like that. Jeff Brumfield is a senior reporter with Nature magazine. He's written an article for Slate.com on the plutonium-238 that's driving the Curiosity rover on Mars. Jeff, good to speak with you. Thanks. Thank you very much, Marco. This is PRI. PRI's The World is more than a radio program. Theworld.org is your daily update of events beyond our borders with links to reliable news sources around the globe at theworld.org. 
The World is supported by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. President Jacob Zuma has declared this week a national week of mourning in South Africa. The country is still in shock after 34 striking miners were shot dead by police last Thursday. The miners were demanding better working conditions and improved salaries. Operations at the platinum mine where the shooting took place are still on hold. That's despite a call by the Lawnman Company, which owns the site, for the striking workers to report back to work. The BBC's Nomsa Maseko in Johannesburg says last week's shooting is still fresh for the miners and their families. People are still reeling in shock, you know, and uh, the, the mine had called on uh, its employees to return to work today or face being dismissed. And only 30% of the workforce actually heeded that call. But the thousands others refused to go back to work, saying that if they were to go back today, it means their 34 colleagues who were shot dead by police last week would have died in vain. So what happens if these miners don't go back to work? What do they face? In fact, the, the, the Lonman bosses uh, say have, they, they've now extended their deadline. The deadline was today, but now they're saying mine workers who didn't report for duty today won't be dismissed or face any potential disciplinary actions. And, of course, it's going to be a, a logistical nightmare trying to ascertain who didn't come to work because we do know that more than 250 of, of the mine workers were also arrested shortly after the deadly attack with police last Thursday. How long is Lonman, the, the mine operator, and owners uh, willing to uh, kind of tolerate the standoff. Well, it's only for tomorrow. Uh, I mean, Lonmin has fired thousands of workers earlier this year in another of their mine where there was the same thing. Drill operators were on strike. They did not want to return to work. All of them were fired. And mine bosses and union representatives had, had to go, you know, and, and negotiate, making sure that these people are reinstated back in their jobs. As far as what happened, the government of Jacob Zuma urged the country right after the shootings to not point fingers and uh, not assign blame. But is the narrative of the police opening fire on these striking workers getting more clear? You know, at this stage, it's only now, it's only today that police have actually come forward and and, and made an appeal to, to members of the press asking them that whoever had footage or has footage of the shooting as it, as it took place to bring it forward so that it can form part of the investigation. In, t- in fact, in today's, I mean, it was all over the newspapers today and, of course, all over the news channels where we see footage of a mine worker shooting at police before the officers opened a barrage of fire. Now, the mine workers who were shot at are members of a radical labor union splinter group that broke away from the National Union of Mine Workers. And and apparently the striking miners say that the mainstream union, the NUM, is too allied with President Zuma's party of the African National Congress. Do do people there suspect that that could have influence on the investigation into the massacre in Marikana? They do suspect that uh, that could be the case. That is why, in fact, President Zuma has now called on a judicial commission of inquiry to to investigate what had happened there, which means a judge will then sit and investigate and the judge will have powers to subpoena um, witnesses and to also bring about evidence. And which also means that um, the findings of that commission of inquiry could mean whoever is found wrong could be prosecuted. So what kind of pressure has this incident brought on President Zuma? 
President Zuma is in a very difficult position at the moment because, I mean, uh, the, the former ANC Youth League president, Julius Malema, has been calling on him to step down, saying that the tragedy happened on Mr. Zuma's watch. And, of course, we are seeing opposition political parties trying to score some political points. I mean, they have um, addressed the thousands of mine workers who, who, who stayed away from work. So every political party in this country is trying to score some points by going to the mine workers and speaking to them. The BBC's Nomsa Maseko telling us about the ongoing aftermath in South Africa of last week's deadly shooting by police of 34 striking miners. Finally today, we meet a pop singer from Chile, a performer who's become something of a spokesman for gay rights there. Reporter Marissa Neff has a story. Throughout his career, Alex Vanter has been an outspoken critic of discrimination in his native Chile. Yet it came as somewhat of a surprise to him when his music became identified with a murder that sent shockwaves through the South American country. What happened is that earlier this year, in March, this kid uh, called Daniel Samudio, he was a victim of torture and actually died eventually by some neo-Nazis who attacked him because he was gay. I won't go into the details of what they did to him because it's like really horrible but it was horrible enough to like shake up my country in regards with the um, environment of discrimination we, we live in. The brutal murder spurred a media frenzy. In the midst of it, the victim's family spoke about how Envanter had been Zamudio's favorite artist. They played his music at the widely covered funeral and urged him to continue speaking out against homophobia in Chile. The experience inspired Envanter to create a music video that was a tribute to Jenny Livingston's 1990 documentary about New York's queer subculture, Paris is Burning. Here's a clip from the film. The part of my life that was a secret is now closed. I can close the closet door, there are no more skeletons in there, and I'm as free as the wind that's blowing out on this beach. (laughs) My idea was that we in Chile don't have an equivalent of Paris is burning. We are, like, that far behind. Like, people do, do not accept any type of diversity, nor nor do they get to actually see diversity. So my intention was to show, like, uh, sexual minorities or diversity in a very beautiful light. The song on the video is Como Puedes Vivir Contigo Mismo. Como puedes vivir contigo mismo means uh, how can you live with yourself. I mean, as all my songs, it's based on a very personal experience, and it's mostly about like people telling you how to live your life and being basically against that but uh, as I was writing it I did realize it could translate into like a subtly political statement against you know discrimination In May two months after the murder of Daniel Zamudio, Chile's Congress passed a long delayed anti-discrimination mandate it's called the Zamudio Law When asked whether he now calls himself an activist and Vanter isn't so sure at first. I've been a bit surprised now, like reading press releases or stuff, like calling me like singer and activist, Alex and Vanter. It's like, what? <laughs> I'm an activist? But I guess 
I don't know. I'm fine with it. When I found out that my visibility, like small degree of visibility, could actually help something to get a message across, I felt comfortable with that. So, yeah, I guess I'm an activist. <laughs> uh, closeted activist. <laughs> For the world, I'm Marissa Knapp. Check out Marissa's blog posts about music in New York City this summer at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Carnegie Corporation. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, the Freeman Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.